This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I am doing very, very well. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, today we've got Steve Grundall. And Steve, 20 years ago, started a, uh, a 3D printing service Yeah, in Colorado. And it's called uh, Midwest Prototyping. Midwest Prototyping grew out to be a, a regional player in the tro- prototyping business. And uh, then Steve managed to sell his company. And so that entire journey from, from joining uh, 3D printing in the Stone Age to, to selling his, his, his company in the SPAC Age, uh, yeah, I think it would make for a very interesting story. And, uh, and, and Steve's had a lot of uh, anecdotes and experiences and, and, and has been yeah, part of this industry, a big part of this industry for a very, very crucial time. So welcome to the 3D Pod, Steve. Uh, good to be with you guys. Thanks for having me on. First off, like, what way did you get into 3D printing? Like, around, was it around 20 years ago when you started, right? I started in 2001, bought my first machine in 2001. Uh, I had learned about it eight or nine years earlier. Uh, I was actually a student at MSOE, the Milwaukee School of Engineering. And in the early 90s, I think 93 was my first year there. And at the time, they had an SLA 250 and <laughs> made a really big deal out of it because they were one of the first universities to have this kind of equipment. So I learned about it there, got a glimpse of it. I never actually touched the machine. You know, they kept it locked away in a, in a room like it was Fort Knox or something, but uh, was able to use it for my projects. So I was able to draw up a couple CAD designs, submit the files. And in those days, you know, in a campus environment, two or three weeks later, get a part back <laughs> in some, you know, really... <laughs> really brittle looking amber resin but uh that was my first exposure and that kind of set the hook mm-hmm. okay and what made you like actually say like okay i'm gonna do a business this is gonna be my uh my livelihood uh well i was in college at the university there for a few more years then graduated and, and took a job in a completely different industry doing field service work so i was traveling a lot uh installing equipment uh, enjoyed it for a while but ultimately got sick of the traveling and and wanted to get off the road and, and settle down a little bit. And at the time, nobody, at least nobody interesting was hiring. And I had always kept track of this technology and, and knew that it was growing and gaining acceptance. And obviously, you know, FDM and SLS and some other things were starting to happen. So it just uh, seemed like a good idea at the time to put together a business plan and see if I could make a go of it. Okay, okay. And what, what, that was scary, uh, ultimately, right? That was. <laughs> well, they say ignorance, you, did, is, ignorance is bliss, bliss. And, and there's proof to that. <laughs> did, did you need funding initially to start it up, or were you able to self-fund, or how did, how did you get that capital? <laughs> I, had, uh, I had about $30,000 in savings, and after a lot of work, I convinced a local bank who had no idea what stereolithography or 3D printing or <laughs> anything like that was, uh, I think my first loan was about $125,000. So that was the total capital, uh, those combined. And That's actually very impressive that they managed to give you that much money. Having you know, done a small company, several small companies, it, it's so difficult to get a bank to just even do that much. Did, did it take you months to get them to give you that? Or 
Half well, a year? It, it took me a couple couple banks because right. <laughs> <laughs> but ironically, the one I had been with, you know, since my parents started a savings account when I was a child, uh, turned me down and uh, found another one with you know it's all relationships, right? So I found a, a lender that uh, knew some friends of mine, got to know him. He. Uh, you know, he looked at me square in the eye and said, you know, I'm doing this because I believe in you. And, you know, that that kind of thing never leaves you. So you don't want to let that person down because he put himself on the line for you. And, you know, in, in hindsight, that was probably great experience to have to go through those initial struggles to convince someone that this made sense, because along the way, I was convincing myself that it made sense. And, and who who's your first customer? Do you remember? Or? Yeah, yeah, I do actually. Uh, he's still a customer today. Uh, oh, nice! It's a it's a local product development firm, design firm called Matrix Product Development, and uh, was my very first customer. And and earlier this year, on our twentieth anniversary, I actually went to visit him, and I I dug up the original first invoice that <laughs> uh, I had sent him, and I it was for two hundred eighty seven dollars or something like that. So I. I took him a check for two hundred eighty-seven dollars and a copy of the original invoice, and and just stopped by to say thanks. But uh, yeah, he's he's been a customer for you know every year since then. Uh, okay, that's good. I and mean, and what were you? What, okay, so you were like, how how prepared were you on the business side of things, like things like marketing and accounting and all that kind of stuff? Do you have any experience in that stuff, or no, not really. Um, <laughs> to be honest. Um, you know, I was smart enough technically to figure out the machine and, and learn the operation side, but the rest of it, you just, you have to do it, right? You have to figure it out. And I leaned mm-hmm. on people for accounting advice and tax advice and those sorts of things where I was clearly not equipped and equally not interested in, uh, in necessarily knowing that stuff. So uh, marketing was very much word of mouth. You know, the mm-hmm. internet was still a novelty in some ways in those days. So uh, it was local SolidWorks users group meetings, pro e users group meetings, meeting people that way, and uh, just you know building out a network of of actual acquaintances. Was it like gradual growth? Did you just do a little bit more, a little bit more? Was it like a big bang kind of moment where you could afford another machine or something like that, or how did how did the kind of growth happen? Yeah, it was gradual growth, and uh, you know I don't have the numbers in front of me anymore, but the first year two years it was on a a fairly gradual path but then i had an opportunity to pick up a sla 5000 large frame machine i already Mm -hmm. had uh traded in my 250 for a viper and you know was starting to to move my way up the food chain on the machine side Mm -hmm. and i picked up that large machine and that that kind of opened the doors uh because i had been outsourcing some larger work or turning down some larger work and that was a huge risk it felt like at the time, but it uh it did you know just kind of put things into another gear mm-hmm. and that was I think in my third year, probably Are you profitable kind of from the beginning, so to speak or yeah i you know I had like you had to be yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so i didn't I didn't spend it if I didn't have it, you know there was right. no, <laughs> yeah, I think we showed a very small loss the first year, but we were always cash positive, you know, if you take out depreciation and things like that. Um, we always had enough cash to pay the bills. I didn't have to go back and do any sort of bridge loan or, or secondary loan. You know, future borrowing was all tied to new assets. So, and did you have employees at the time? And I mean, and then of course it becomes kind of a serious business if all of a sudden you've got like half a dozen people walking around or something like that. 
Yeah, I didn't when I started. I started by myself, but it was probably six or eight months in when I hired my first employee. That was, you know, hey, I, I might need some help part time. And, you know, the minute he got here, I kept him busy all the time. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we started to ramp up employees, you know, so just added one at a time. First five or six years, uh, we kind of kept a small crew of, we probably grew to like five people during that time. Uh, but then we built a new facility in 2006, moved in right at the beginning of 07, and that gave us a room to grow mm-hmm. and a room to, you know, add more technologies and, and just really build out the business. And what kind of parts were you making in the beginning? Was it molds and prototypes or what was it in the, the beginning? It was almost exclusively prototypes. Um, you mentioned that we started in Colorado. We actually have a facility in Colorado, but we started in Wisconsin. So the, oh, I'm the sorry, core yeah. of our operations has been the in Midwest Wisconsin. Midwest makes a lot more sense well now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but Wisconsin is very rich in manufacturing, engineering, and because of that, our universities here have great you know, design programs, mechanical engineering and uh, product development programs. So Wisconsin is rich in product development firms, and I was able to form relationships with those companies, and they essentially functioned as a part of our sales force because they were going out and selling larger programs to OEMs and you know, would budget in a certain amount of prototype work to accomplish their goals. So the, that was really key for us in the early days to to have and to leverage those relationships. And we worked really hard at taking care of those people to make sure they got what they needed on time. In, in the early days, was it more about um, time for getting using the printers instead of, of doing it the old fashioned way? Or was it cost or was it both? It depended a little bit on the customer, but I think the time thing uh, was, you know, people were beginning to understand just how impactful that was. Uh, because we were certainly transitioning people away from machining things out of a modeling board or out of wood. You know, that was, uh, that was clear. And the really successful relationships we had were just the companies that weren't afraid to iterate very quickly. Right. Because right. so, they wanted, they, they saw the results. They wanted to make changes. They wanted a new results in a yeah. very short period of time. Right. And and the other thing is I had one customer who told me he spent $250,000 on injection mold tooling and an additional $250,000 on changes to that tooling. For that, me that's to a do- lot. Yeah. <laughs> for, for changes, that's a lot. <laughs> for me to, to deliver a $700 prototype to him uh, in a day or two, you know, he had zero concerns. He was, he was wanting to avoid the product recalls and the uh, pain and suffering that went along with all those tooling changes. And so you stayed with prototypes. And when did you notice when there was like a shift when you started making more casting or, or you know, uh, or molds? And when did this become more more intermediate? You know, I would say that's really been meaningful over the past six or seven years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so take us back to 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do a lot of urethane casting here as well. So we're making silicone molds and we've been able to print a lot of molds direct for small parts or print inserts for larger molds. And, you know, it just becomes very complementary to that process when you've got people that have the creativity and the imagination to leverage the technology. When you say you're printing molds, um, are you also printing like, like injection molds, like metal molds at this point? Or 
No, we, we're strictly polymer at this point. We don't do okay. any, okay. any metal printing yet. Uh, no, so the molds we're printing are for use in our shop, uh, in our urethane you department. department. Right. Yeah. Your... And, when did, and when did you decide to go? Because this is all SLA then. So it's all SLA. It's mostly prototypes, and it, it transitions to maybe some more casting stuff. And when do you start looking at other technologies, like, like, like uh, sintering and stuff like that? In 2008, we acquired a competitor, a company also here in Wisconsin, called Manitowoc Prototypes. And in that acquisition, we received a SLS machine. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, I had hired people by then who had run SLS in previous lives. So mm -hmm. we were able to bring that in, uh, get that Was it a DTM or, or what was it? Yeah, it was a DTM, a uh, 2500 nice. plus. So one of the old workhorses. Good, good. And uh, I still wouldn't mind having one of those. But <laughs> actually, we still have it, and it's still oh, contributing. Yeah. It's it's a great machine. We've done all the digital upgrades on it, and uh, still here in our in our fleet. Okay, so you got the. Did that change stuff for you, or was it just something to complement stuff, or was it like, oh my god, we can do so much more now? It was it was complimentary at that point. Uh, as we have moved forward now, we're up to eight SLS machines. And it's a significant part of our business. And mm -hmm. one of the things that we have been involved with was uh, a company in, in England called AMT mm -hmm. that developed the uh, surface finish, the post-processing mm -hmm. system. Uh, we were their early seed investor and their development site. Mm -hmm. So solving the, the surface finish problem has just exploded the opportunities for SLS mm -hmm. and MJF uh, mm -hmm. primarily. Yeah, so talk a little bit more about that. I mean, I, th I think a lot of people, well, if you're in the sintering world, then you get it, but otherwise maybe you don't really understand why that's so important. Like uh, they, essentially these SLS parts, well, you first have to post-process them, which is like really costly, right? Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, the surface is porous and may also contain still some uh, loose powder. And, and so, yeah, how impactful is that on your business if you have to deal with that every day? Yeah, the, the way that started, you know, this was... 2015, 16, probably. And everybody was talking about going to production. You know, additive manufacturing, 3D printing is going to production. And I, I remember distinctly, I was sitting, I was on a phone with a customer and I had a, a nylon SLS part of my desk. You know, you always play with things on your desk. And I was twirling this part around in my hands and I, I looked at it. It had been, there, been around the shop for some time and it was getting sort of yellowed and dirty. And I thought, if we're going to go to a customer that's used to injection molding or some traditional form of manufacturing and say, here's your, here's your path forward. And it's got this porous grainy surface finish that gets dirty. And, you know, it just, we have to at least meet them at that level, right? We can't come mm -hmm. in with a inferior product or inferior yeah. surface finish, even if the product is, is strong enough or, or good enough in some other way. So we set out to solve that issue, and, and long story short, we went through, we had some interns work on different finishing methods, mechanical methods like tumbling and, and all of those sorts of things, and, and ultimately eliminated those possibilities. And then we, uh, we licensed the technology from the University of Sheffield, and that was called the push process. And mm -hmm. as we worked our way through that, we got a call from the guys at AMT who had started up specifically to solve this problem. And mm -hmm. uh, Joe Crabtree, the, the CEO there, had, had seen the same potential, the same problem that needed to be solved. Long story short, we kind of compared notes on where we were each at and 
decided we'd be better together. So mm-hmm. we made an investment in AMT and you know focused our efforts on assisting them to get through to the market. And and so far, that's been a great success. And then so like this this actually like well post finishing stuff radically changes the economics. Of, well, it changes two things. It changes the economics because it makes it significantly cheaper. And it change, it makes it more closer to an end use part, right? And oh, mm-hmm. by the way, the yellowing thing you mentioned that that means it's that really dates that part because that means it's like pre when I think it was Ivonic, uh figured out how to put the titanium, uh, what is it called T- the titanium white in, and then titanium oxide, yeah, yeah. So that's like a really old part because then it, the yellow at one point they solved that as well. That's also <laughs> that's a separate thing, right? Yeah, you know, separate to that. I mean, you got this one. You got a much more end use part and you got the the, the 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 reducing of the labor cost what was the big motivator for you were, were you really looking at the end use qualities is that more like what you were, were after or? yeah it was it was all about just widening the funnel for applications for sls and and ultimately later mjf you know we saw that this Material was pretty good. The process was good. We could build great parts. Uh, you know, the Achilles heel was the surface finish. And we just decided that that needed to be solved for it to be taken seriously. And now here we are. And it's, you know, it's still inching along. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not saying we're going to re- replace injection molding or anything absurd like that. But, boy, there are a lot of applications out there that you know, if you need 500 or 5,000 of something and this surface finish is acceptable, then this is a, this is a great way to approach it. Uh, is that how you see the future of printing? I mean, we, there was a time when everybody was saying, like, we're going to do compete with ma- injection molding, all this stuff. And and do you see it now as a complementary technology or something that, that has its own niches? Or what's your vision on that? I don't, I don't see a future in my lifetime where injection molding plants are, you know, sending their presses out the back door and, and putting in 3D printers. Uh, mm-hmm. I think they're very complementary. And I think for people that really understand design for additive and can combine parts and, you know, do lightweight structures or hollow or lattice or things that can't be molded and really improve their product, then additive is clearly the way to go. Now, if, you're, if you want to make 20 million of something, probably injection molding still makes more financial sense. Um, Obviously, every case is different, and I, I hesitate to make a blanket statement, but there is no shortage of opportunity for additive to keep sort of improving how products are designed and, and how they're deployed. Yeah, to me, it's, it's, it's weird because now we're having like mainly two camps, and one is the complementary camp where they're like, oh, it's just un, un, in, in the arsenal of manufacturing technologies. And my personal preference is just like, no, we're going to focus on the really good business cases like orthopedic implants, rocket parts, you know, yeah. the stuff that is really advantageous. Not that it has just one ad- advantage, not like, you know, it's, it's lose weight, but lose weight. Plus we can uh, reduce part count. Plus we can optimize the texture and all these things that are really very beneficial. Yeah. There are certain, certain markets, certain applications where clearly this is the only way to really move forward. Uh, and, and you, you named a couple for sure. Yeah, you you helped AMT a lot, I think, and uh, and and then at one point you you ended up you know being the well you know being one of the first MGF customers I think as well, right? Yeah, we were pretty early. They had their foundation customers or whatever they called it, you know, that did the beta testing and the field testing, and and we weren't in that group, but uh, I think we were one of the first production machines that rolled out, and uh, yeah, went through you know the the learning curve with that as well, but uh, it's it's a another great way to make end-use parts. 
And, and why did you why did you do NDF in the first place? You could have said, "Oh, well, I'll stick to sintering. That's what I know." Kind of. The the promise of that voxel level approach was really interesting to me on a technical level, and especially, you know, early on they talked about the possibility of being able to use different agents, uh, different you know, different solutions that would create different physical properties in the printed part. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, ultimately we haven't seen that come to fruition yet, but the promise of that was super interesting to me, and I wanted to make sure that we understood you know, where this technology might go. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, for example, we could make it, make a part more or less elastic on the surface or something like that, or, yeah, or, or maybe change know, the or, modulus or whatever. Exactly. Mind. Some sort of Mixed variable. Materials. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and, and then, and then you also, but you also started doing FDM at one point. That's, I think a bit of a, a lot of people don't do FDM in the service bureau environment, right? Yeah, that is uh, something we've avoided for a long time, getting into too deep. and. What we found is so many of our customers had FDM machines primarily, and some had polyjet machines that we actually bought both of those technologies in at the same time. And just a small offering initially was one of each because when customers came to visit and we gave plant tours, we found that it was a very good way to you know, start a conversation. They saw something they were familiar with. They could talk about their experiences with it, and very quickly they talked about their frustrations with it. You know, if they had if they had one in their design lab, usually it was backed up because those machines aren't particularly quick. And if you have five or ten or twenty engineers feeding that one machine, you've got a backlog instantly. So we found our best luck was just taking overflow work from our customers that already had the machines. As opposed to going to the market and trying to compete in what was becoming a hyper-competitive space. And then the other thing that it did is it allowed us to say, okay, well, if you know, if FDM isn't exactly what you need, then we have these other technologies. We have SLS and MJF and SLA, and, and maybe we can solve it that way, quicker, faster, cheaper, better. Or, or if not, we can support you with just overflow FDM work. So it was almost as much a marketing tool with our core customer base. And uh, you know, a way to to just ease into those conversations. A friend once asked me to get, a, should I get a carbon machine? I told him, well, you should get one just to negotiate with three systems, right? <laughs> <laughs> your resin, your, your resin's not going to get more expensive if you have the carbon machine, right? Right. <laughs> that was the I'm curious. So you, you started this, you know, pretty early in the public sense of like three D printers and that. I know printers have been around since the eighties, but yeah. Um, what did I mean, a lot of other people clearly also had this concept and tried similarly. What do you think is it that you did that was differentiating you and able, allowing you to not only survive, but thrive? Uh, whereas I think a lot of other companies were kind of eating each other alive uh, for quite a number of years there. Yeah, I think part of it is, you know, fiscal responsibility. We talked, we touched on that earlier, right? I didn't, I didn't take a lot of funding. I didn't borrow a lot of money. We had to, you know, we, we could eat what we killed, right? And we just took that approach to growth, so we didn't get too far ahead of ourselves. Uh, I think that our personal touch with our customers, you know, we would do what it took to get them parts on time and deliver right to their door. And, you know, that, that there's always a room for high-touch 
service uh, in this business because right. the engineers and the designers are so intimately involved with that CAD file, right? And they they have everything invested in it and they have a deadline. So when you can deliver and give them a good looking part on time or, or early, you know, you become a little bit of a hero to them and uh, they don't forget that. They become loyal and and we built the business on that kind of service, you know, as it's as it's gotten bigger and it's gone into production applications, you know, that that's uh, the challenge, right, is to, to maintain those relationships and that, that kind of level of service. We advance into the next oh. level of the 21st century. Like, what are you now seeing on the horizon as being the, the main focuses for you guys? We're continuing to drive what are our core technologies. We are continuing to investigate the new ones and try to pick the winners from the losers. We are watching metals very closely, but have so far avoided that for our company. Um, I'm curious on the metals. Is it that the complexity of it, the cost of it, or everything? It's everything. But I think what we've seen, what we've learned is that the first-time failure rate, the amount of effort to get one good part is just not that conducive to design level or design firm type prototyping, which is still a big part of our business. Yeah. It's just, you know, if it takes three times to get a good part, that's not a great business model if they only want to pay for one. Right. And then they want to see it and then make changes and then see it again. (laughs) So you're making six or nine parts to do two or three parts at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. And and you can, you know, if you're doing a 5,000 part run, you can build in some failures to, you know, to optimize and, and right dial that in but uh the other thing is you know i felt like the metals industry for the longest time was needing some consolidation it's had a little bit but you know you could look at all the different dmls machines and one had a higher power laser and one had a better powder feed system and one had a better this or that but you know the analogy i give is like going to the toyota dealership and there's there's 10 toyota camrys in a row and they all have different options but ultimately they're kind of all the same. I just wasn't educated enough to dive in with both feet. And quite frankly, our polymer business has been growing so much that it made more sense to just keep investing in that and and doing what we were good at. Right. You didn't see the need, or at least not at this time. Right. I'm very interested in it. And I, I, no, as am I. And that's, I'm just curious when people are saying that they're not going into it. Um, what's preventing them? What's, what's holding them back? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I spent once I was I spent like a, a long time like at a lot at lunch trying to convince Freed to go into metal printing or Freed <laughs> of, of materialize. I was just super convinced it was like the future and amazing. And he's just like, Nope. Too complicated. Nope. <laughs> it just didn't believe it's it was not ready. Easy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was like, But you can do it. And he's like, But that's not a reason to do something. And I'm like, Okay. Yeah, that's always, <laughs> sometimes it's so simple, right? <laughs> yeah. As I, as I like to still remind people, desktop 3D printers are still not a consumer product. No. As much as everyone wishes they were, they're not. No. So the concept of getting a metal 3D printer as like a consistent thing does seem yeah. still quite early in the process. Yes. Well, I'm, I know it can be done. I know it can uh, be done. But well, to me, I, to me, powder bed fusion is is, is 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 very complex, and also financially. I mean, you haven't you've kind of touched on the being financially responsible. I mean, you're talking about like a one to two million dollar investment in one machine, and you're not going to be able to make money on that 
So you need to put in like three million to get like right. you know do all the HVAC stuff and everything, the preparation and everything, and depowdering and all this stuff, and and then you need like two machines. So it's like a three million dollar kind of investment, and that's a you know for a lot of people that's a bet the farm kind of investment. Yeah, and 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 for a lot of people, not for Ford, right? But but well, for like a, a, a prototype yeah, for medium business. to small companies, that's yeah. a lot of money to just yeah, outlay exactly. onto a single purchase. And to do it on something that's an opportunity that you don't understand uh, technology, that's a very scary thing. I think rightfully so. I'm happy to watch and happy to learn for now. <laughs> uh, metal, the, the spectator right sport. <laughs> yeah, right. Wait <laughs> no, till it's I, commonplace. <laughs> I know, but I do think things are changing. I mean, I th- the one thing I'm really excited about is, uh, is a slurry SLA. Mm-hmm. We've got Incas, Metshape, uh, Litos, which Admatech, Hollow AM. I'm uh, probably forgetting something that's terrible. And that's, okay, that's, you know, uses SLA, right? It's got a little slurry in it. Okay, sintering is going to be horrible, right? Don't think that you can prototype with this, you know? But for small series and stuff, for the right parts, I think it's a really exciting idea, you know? Yeah, I'm actually encouraged by some of the binder jetting uh, stuff okay, that's also. coming out as well. You're right, the uh, the sintering, the the shrinkage mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. trying to dial that in and get it uniform is is where the real magic is. The printing actually seems pretty straightforward, mm-hmm. but yeah. uh, well, it depends on which printer you buy. But. Yeah, true. <laughs> but uh, uh, so that's interesting. Mean, there there are other ways to metal. I think. Why didn't you never? You, did you never do like investment casting with metal or, or lost wax or it was that never really interesting or was the labor too high or? Yeah, that was just, it was never something our customer base was asking for. And on the rare occasions that they did, we had great places to outsource to. And it was just easier to focus on what we were good at. Mm-hmm. Right. And let someone else focus on what they were good at. Yeah. And so you've done this, like, you built this business for 20 years. And it came out to be quite a big business in the, the service bureau world. And then at one point, well, yeah, it wasn't the first time somebody wanted to acquire you, I'm guessing. And then in the first great big wave, uh, people also tried to buy you, right? Right. So why would you say yes now? Why, why was this the right time? Why was this the right acquiring party? What was the, the, the magic here? Yeah, there were. I've, I've had this question a few times lately, and it's kind of like there were about four or five 20% answers and not one big answer. And, and I'll just kind of go through those. But one of the primary ones is, you know, we've got a great staff. We've got a lot of 25 to 35-year-old employees here uh, that have, in many cases, joined us right out of college. You know, they're, they're young and they're really smart and they're full of energy. And this generation in particular really wants to know, where's their career path? What's next? How do I get there? What do I need to do? And that's all great. I mean, that's that's the kind of stuff you hope for if you you want to develop and and keep employees and the challenge is keeping them. So I felt like we had grown to where we were a big small company and a really small big company. We were just kind of stuck in the middle. And to be able to provide the resources and the the growth path and the you know sort of the guidance for those people and keep our core talent, I was honestly just exhausted and it's it's not something I recognized it wasn't something I was good at. Uh, necessarily, and felt like joining a bigger company with bigger uh, with greater resources and someone to you know finding someone to be able to focus on that and and continue that development was really important. So that was one of the reasons. Uh, the other was you know just personal. My my wife works in the business some. She's been here from day one. Uh, you know, alongside me, not always in the business, but 
I re- recognize that if something happened to me, this wasn't her passion, and I, I didn't want to saddle her with it if I got hit by a bus. <laughs> yeah, fair. <laughs> uh, you know, so it had grown to a size where that would have been a major problem, and I wanted to eliminate that risk. I've got two boys that are, uh, well, they'll be 12 and 14 here shortly. And, you know, the business takes a lot of time. Everybody that, that works in, in a small business knows that. So I wanted to spend more time with them. You know, I saw the window closing before they're off to college or off to the real world uh, at some point, And I want to make sure I took the time when I could. So that's one of the goals. Uh, and then... Not, not to mention the college you have to pay for. Well, yeah, that's coming too. <laughs> Um, then, uh, you know, just, just across the board, eliminating risk, adding talent, adding some decision makers, you know, and, and growing the ones we have and just trying to grow into a bigger business. You know, I felt like we could keep growing at the rate we were, and I could keep signing loan documents and we could, you know, just do more of the same, but I felt like it was time for a step change. you know, and, and this, this gives us that, you know, it makes us a bigger organization. There's considerable capital behind it. It gives more offering to our customers. It gives mm-hmm. more opportunity to our staff. You know, it, it would just, cause you're correct. I, there's been a lot of interest over the years and, you know, some of it, you know, you don't know how serious it is, but certainly there were avenues I could have followed. And uh, this just felt like the right time to make something happen. And then, so that explains as well why Prototech is, is it's a CNC sheet metal company. And it's almost totally complementary, as in, as in, it's like they do nothing in 3D printing and you guys like do very little of what they do. And, and it's kind of like there's a good overlap then. Exactly. We, uh, we do a little bit of CNC machining here uh, for some of our core customers, but really it's a support function, you know, for our facilities and we gain a little revenue where we can. So we've had customers for years asking us to do more machining, more machining. You know, prototype CNC machining is hard to find. And Prototech brings that in, in spades. And the sheet metal side of it, obviously very complimentary. complimentary excuse me. Uh, they didn't have any additive, and their customers had been asking for that. And I saw this as a real opportunity for us to, you know, enhance our offering, enhance their offering, obviously. But really what I liked about it is that we're the beachhead for additive in, in their facility, in their operation. And that gives us the opportunity to continue to shape the future a little bit. You know, we're not just being plugged into an already existing platform where they already know what they're doing and just need capacity. Uh, we, get to, we get to help them learn what we need to do together. And, you know, that's maybe a little more work, but it's also a lot more interesting. But you're generating value on both sides, which right. is what... The whole point of an acquisition is about at the end of the day. <laughs> so, no. <laughs> ideally, yeah. <laughs> ideally, ideally. No, it's a bigger swimming pool. That's it. Well, no, <laughs> it, it, it's, but it's a bigger swimming pool for everyone. Because you're okay, okay. And, uh, and, and what do you hope to achieve? Well, well you're, you're going to still be guiding uh, Prototech or heading up the additive part of Prototech. Um, so what do you hope to achieve in the, in the time uh, uh, with them? You know, clearly we want to keep growing. There's there's more opportunity, but what I get excited about is just seeing applications, you know, the good applications for additive and solving the problems with the technology. And, you know, so I hope to spend a little more time uh, on that side of it. 
and they want us to grow the additive side. So mm -hmm. I think we'll be looking for ways to either grow at their existing sites, grow at our existing sites, whether it's here in Wisconsin or in Colorado, and look for you know acquisitions that make sense to grow the the footprint and the offering uh, to our customers. So. Mm -hmm. For me, it's it's a lot of the same. It's it's growth, which the last twenty years has been all about. Uh, right. But just with uh, with more resources and you know more eyes on the uh, on the various decisions. Okay. Cool. 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 And that's that's primarily in the states. Like, uh, is that is that your area where you want to grow in? Yeah, I think so. There's been there's been very preliminary conversations about other regions, but I think that's premature at this point. We've got oh. a lot of opportunity in the States and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of work to do at this point, just to integrate our, our current offerings. And what are the applications? Cause you did touch on what are the applications that you're excited about? Or what are the applications that you're excited about that you can actually tell us about? <laughs> yeah. Better question. Well, I'm excited like multiple entry rocket. Uh, <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> MIR, have you heard of MIRV warheads yours? They're amazing. <laughs> No, that's a great qualifier because, of course, yeah. we can't talk about everything. But I still think that jigs, fixtures, manufacturing aids, shop floor, manufacturing floor opportunity is is enormous. And I know that's not the sexiest side of 3D printing. but Everyone needs a jig, man. Boy, important. <laughs> I, I need jigs all the time. So I, I hear you. You know, there's there's so much opportunity there. And it's just a matter of getting people trained to you know use this technology use this equipment whether they're using us or they're using their own in-house fdm printer you got you need to get people thinking that way and then it you know then there's opportunity for everybody so that's that's one uh you know i i just see tremendous opportunity there uh then i think the small series stuff with with sls with mjf with the amt finish uh there are so many 500 to 5,000 part opportunities out there that people don't need to wait months for tooling and, and spend the money, you know, the capital investment on tooling, they can order as they go, you know, 10 at a time or a hundred at a time or whatever. And that that's an application thing, but it's also a business thing. You know, it's a very different business model and that's super interesting. The other thing I see is is what I call pop-up manufacturing, where, you know, an opportunity exists in a market for a small period of time, and you design a part to capitalize on that, and you order them on demand, and when the demand goes away, you stop making them, and you well, move on to like the next fidget thing. spinners? <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> you know, you're, uh, you're hitting the market at its peak, and you're able to produce quickly, get to market almost instantaneously. Sop yeah. up some of that money and yeah. Yeah. As an, as an example, we had a, you know, I can talk about this one a little bit. We had a customer that made these gantry type devices for GoPro cameras. So they could mount, ah. they could mount six GoPro cameras all on this one device. And then they had the software that stitched all the content together and you could get this spherical kind of content. Uh, very niche thing, you know, the mountain climbers and base jumpers and adventure guys were using it. And he, he would order those on demand and 20 a month, 50 a month, a hundred a month, whatever he needed and do the final assembly himself and sell them as a kit with the, you know, the other bracketry or software or whatever. 
But we did that for, I don't know, 18 months or so. And then, of course, the GoPro changes, right? They come out with a new one and nothing fits anymore. Uh, so at that time, and by that time, I also think there were other competitors, uh, better, yeah, better options on the market. So he was able to just shut it down and right. no inventory. He could move on to whatever, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever was lane, next. No, nothing to get rid of. Yeah, nothing yeah. to maintain. Um, so that's that's what I have in mind when I talk about pop up manufacturing is is just see an opportunity, develop a nice product, capitalize on it, and walk away when it's done. Mm-hmm. That's really yeah. funny because like when we were at Shapeways, we thought that that was like going to be the hugest thing, right? That we could make products faster, <laughs> right? And we're always trying to get the specs of the latest iPhone or whatever latest phones or whatever, and we try to get like, like and stuff. yeah, stuff faster to market. And that was like the whole thing, and then nobody does it. <laughs> 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 it's like it was like we were preparing for it, and we we're like, you know, we, we it was like the most important thing to us, to like to get like the size of all the new consumer electronics and stuff, you know. Yeah, and and there's one time like we we call it like the lottery kind of like we, one time we were going to say okay we have these million parts they're for sale, at one point one of these guys is going to sell a million of them you know we mm-hmm. just have to wait <laughs> right yeah right if, if enough. Now, I'm not sure <laughs> if they're still waiting but I think they are you know so it's it's weird how I love the pop up manufacturing idea by the way and then as a, as a, the terminology as well but this idea of you know how many people are actually going to do this? That's the thing. But that, that's, that, I think that's yeah. the point here is that not everyone's going to do it. And mm-hmm. so instead of trying to be the place that has all the data and mm-hmm. then makes the part, you have to mm-hmm. just be the place that you go to, to make mm-hmm. the part. Like, cause yeah. only a small handful of engineers, product designers and whatnot are going to actually be like, I'm inspired to do this thing, but I'm mm-hmm. only inspired enough to make like a few thousand. And therefore, this is, I need to print it. I need to additive it rather than tool it, injection mold it, and spit it out um, 30 days later. So it is a, it's a, I like the idea of the pop up manufacturing. There is definitely a niche there that can do that. And you're absolutely right, Steve. It's, it's a very small period of time 18 months, two mm-hmm. years, whatever. And then you shut yeah. it down. You move on to the next thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, but I, think, I, think, I think the Shapeways model of trying to have all that stuff. It's, it reminds me of, uh, what was that company um, pre-Kickstarter that was like a crowdfunding manufacturing Quirky. thing? Quirky. I know everything That's about ex- Quirky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the Shapeways yeah. model that you're talking about, George, reminds me of the Quirky model, which oh, yeah. didn't really work at the end of the day. Yeah, um, the, I could talk about this for hours. We should do an episode just on Quirky. I did a lot of on these guys. So, but I think that the issue was they had one designer, and then so everything looked very, very the same, and it wasn't uh, very compelling to, to a lot of people. Oh, seriously, I think that's the issue. So they crowdfunded all these ideas and all these different products, and they made it all look kind of like meh. That's the short answer. <laughs> that's the short answer. We could we yeah. could spend a whole episode on Quirky, yeah. which no. I'd love to do it sometime. And, and that's one of those things that you think would work, right? So, but but I love the idea of prop up manufacturing, Steve. I think it's a really great idea, but uh, I don't know how to make it happen because I've been trying to do this for a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's a certain few people that get it so far, right? And that's that's right, the, exactly. That's the, those are the ones that are going to take advantage of it yeah. nobody else. And that's what, you know, that's what I say in presentations all the time is that we are a generation or two away from really leveraging 3D printing and additive manufacturing. You know, the, 
the kids mm-hmm. that are six, seven, eight years old that are yeah. now playing with 3D printers will be the ones that make the change. Uh, yeah. We're kind right. of trying to always be in their consciousness. They would never think of manufacturing in the traditional manner necessarily right. without first printing the part to check it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for being there. And uh, you, you were here when we coined the term, or Steve coined the term. Maybe you've been doing this for years, of pop-up manufacturing. Steve coined the term pop-up manufacturing. Uh, <laughs> or maybe you've been doing we're it for 10 present. years. We don't, we're you're all there. <laughs> Tell your friends. Um, and, uh, and yeah, Steve, thank you so much for, for telling your story today. Oh, thank you. This is fun, guys. Uh, happy to do it, and uh, great to hear from everyone. Okay, cool. And Max, thank you for being here today as well. Always. Thank you, Joris, for hosting. And thank you for listening. And uh, my name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. Thank you. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com. underscore